Second Thessalonians is where we want to be this morning. Chapter 1, we're going to talk about the power of persistence. In the text that I read to begin with in Hebrews chapter 12, and actually in Hebrews 11, uh, it says this because Hebrews 12, 1 says, therefore. And if you know what therefore means, what is it therefore? It kind of tells us in verses 39 uh, of chapter 11, it says, they were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what he had promised. It says God had planned something better for us so that only together with us, we would be made perfect. So let's just jump right in this morning. The first thing you outline is simply this. There is great blessing in store for God's people who refuse to give up. Who refuse to give up. Who refuse to throw their hands up in the air and say, you know what? This world and everything it's trying to do to me, I'm done. I'm through. I can't do it anymore. But there's great blessing for those people who refuse to to give up. There's great power in persistence. There's great power in perseverance in what we try to do and what God wants in store for us. When Paul wrote his first letter to the church of the Thessalonians, it was full of encouragement to be ready for the return of Christ. He's encouraged them over and over again. He reassured them that their loved ones who died won't miss the big event but they're going to actually be first in that second coming. Now, most scholars want to believe that there's probably less than a year from when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. But between the two letters, persecution has even become stronger in this church against the believers. It's intensified within this year. And apparently, someone had written a letter or had been saying that Christ's return was already happened. So there's some confusion going on. So Paul corrects this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He just simply says this. I mean, there's persecution going on, and these people are going, we said Jesus was coming, and now these people are saying he's already been here. Listen to what Paul says. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us whether by prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. You see, in this message, Paul wants us to understand there's power in persistence. There's power in keeping going. doesn't make any difference what the world says. doesn't make any difference what the world is trying to tell us to do. But Paul wants us to understand we've got to keep going, that there is indeed power in this persistence. So Paul begins this second letter. Second Thessalonians, by encouraging the believers to preserve or to persevere and to persist in spite of painful trials that they were facing. Listen to what he says in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1. It says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to always to thank God for you, brothers and brothers, and rightly so. Listen to what he says. Because your faith is growing more and more, and the love that you have for all the other people are increasing. He says, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, 
And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Just kind of take that in for a second. All the things they were doing, Paul says, you're doing it right. Keep going. Don't give up. I want you to understand, Satan's number one temptation for Christians in the world today, same as what it was in Paul's day, same as what it was to the Thessalonians, is not to try to get us to succumb to immorality. That's not it. It's not to lie or for any kind of abuse, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, and those things that happen in life. Satan's number one temptation for Christians is to try to get you to give up on God. Satan just wants you to say, I'm done. I mean, I tried this whole church thing. I tried this religion thing. I tried this God thing. Man, it's just not working. And I'm just going to give up and people walk away from the church. I mean, his very first temptation in the Garden of Eden with Eve, remember what it was? Eve, don't listen to God. Yeah, I know, God's promised you all these things and perfection and all this, but that's not really what it is. Satan wanted Eve to give up on God's plan, and he whispered in her ear, you can't trust God. You can't trust him. After all, he said you can have all that, but this one thing, really? Go ahead. Don't listen to God. Stop believing. Satan tells him to, or tells Eve, do it your way. Eve, do what you want. And Eve does. So I'm going to ask the question this morning, are we at a place where we feel like giving up? Are we at a place in our life where we're almost at a place where we're going to give up on God a little bit? Okay, God, I know you're there, but I'm not sure you can handle the things in my life. Or maybe we're giving in to temptation to give up on ourself, on our dreams, on our commitment to the Christian life. I mean, are we at that spot? Have you ever been to that spot where you just want to give up? I mean, I can say I have. Not on God, but when I was at Newmarket the first time, I burned out. I had an anxiety attack like I'd never had before. Ended up in the doctor's office for six hours, sitting in a quiet room with music being played. He come in and check my blood pressure. After about six hours, he goes, if it's not down in the next hour, you're having an ambulance and we're taking you to the hospital. And it's like, holy cow. I wasn't giving up on God, but all the things that were happening, I'm going, okay, can't do it anymore. We've all been there probably at one time. You see, there's great blessings in store for God's people who refuse to give up. So what do we have to do in our life to keep us from giving up? What do we have to do in order for us to have new strength for each day, have strength for each new week? Number one is simply this. We've got to keep gathering with our church. We've got to keep gathering. He begins his first letter with these powerful words. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. To the church. To us. See, the church is not this building. The church is its people. So many times we read one of Paul's letters, we just kind of skip over the beginning and the introduction because we want to get to the meat of the message. But look at that word church. It's one of the most common words used in the New Testament. It appears over a hundred times. The first time it appears is in Matthew 16 where he says, upon this rock, I will build my church, where he's talking to, to the guys. The last time is in Revelations twenty-two sixteen, where he says, send this message to the churches. 
Since I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star. Send the message to the churches, to us. The Greek word for the church is, called, is the called out ones. Because we as Christians, we as believers, we as followers in Jesus Christ are called out of this world to live a different world, to live a different way, to be different people for examples for other people. We are called out to do it differently. But notice how Paul said it. He says, what was the location of the church? It was the church of the Thessalonians. Okay, so we're the church of West Liberty. But also, it's also telling us we are still part of this church in for, uh, the Thessalonians. We're part of them because we're part of God's church. But he says, but the church is located where? It's not our address here. Our church is located in God, in Jesus Christ. Okay, that's who we are. That's where we're located. Yes, God is everywhere. We understand that. He's omnipresent, we say. But we also have to understand there's still a special sense of his presence when his church gathers together. When we come together to worship. When we come together to work. When we come together to do what God has asked us to do. Even in the Old Testament, when the priests offered the sacrifice at the temple, it says the glory of God would fill the temple because of what they were doing. The Bible even says in 1 Corinthians 6, 6.19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Because we are in God. We are the church. We have the Holy Spirit in us. I mean, we can say, but what about individuality? And that's true. We can have God in us, and he's with us no matter where we go, no matter what we do. But it's also true in a corporate sense. When the corporate church comes together to worship together, Jesus dwells in his body called the church. When we meet together in his name, what I love is he promises to make himself visible to us where we can actually see him. And it may not be a visible thing. This is actually Jesus, but he sees God's work through us. And what we do, how we react, how we hug, how we shake hands, what we do for one another. God sees it through us. I love what Matthew 18, 20 says. Where two or three are gathered in my name, what does he say? There I will be also. Two or three, that's all it takes. Look around. We got more than two or three people here. I guarantee you God's presence is with us. So let me ask you the question. Why did you come to church today? I mean, it's not, it was cold outside still. When I put it on Facebook, it was snowing when I was looking out the window. I mean, why did we come to church out of habit? Okay, did somebody make you come to church? Hardy, did Sally finally hit you and say, come on, we're going. You're sitting in your chair. You were comfortable. You guys had a long weekend, opened up the Oasis. You were tired. And maybe Gretchen hit you and said, come on, Dad, we're going to church. So somebody made you come to church Maybe you wanted to hear the music. I don't know. Maybe you wanted to hear the message. I don't know. The outline says this. I hope you came to church because you wanted a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. See, all this other stuff that we do is giving praise to God. 
But if we don't have a personal encounter with him, if we don't truly experience Jesus in this time that we have, we're not going to be able to go back into this world and overcome those temptations and overcome those things that are there. I guarantee you, when we leave this place, Satan's going to be outside the door going, hey, remember me? Whatever thing that was said in there, everything that was sung in there, everything that was done in there, don't listen to that. Because this is when the world starts. And that's what Satan wants us to do. But the writer of Hebrews warns us that we should not forsake the practice of gathering together with other believers. And please hear me in this. When I say that, a lot of people say, well, you're a preacher. You just want numbers. You want to see that attendance board go up. It's not what it is. It's really not. It says we shouldn't forsake the practicing of gathering together. Because it's about what's truly important, and that's our lives. It's a worldwide problem that I see in the world today. I read a lot of things on not only Facebook, but other articles that I get. Uh, The lack of interest in people gathering together in the world today, as we call for worship. Where two or three are gathered in our name. And I think it's what it's telling us is we need a fresh wind and a fresh fire from God in America and American churches today. And people will say, well, you don't do what you have to do to reach other people. You don't do this. You don't do that. You don't have the coffee shop setting. You don't have the, you know, the tables where everybody can just stand around and drink coffee and we do what we do. You know, that's fine. If that's what we need to do and that's where God wants us to go, we'll do something like that. But I'm not saying that. It's about having a true encounter with God. You see, more Americans worship the God of recreation on Sunday than they worship the Creator. I know that's hard to hear, and that's hard for me to say, but it's true. And with apologies to King David, here's a psalm of the God of recreation that I found. It simply says this. It says, recreation is my shepherd, I shall not worship. It makes me lie down in sleeping bags. It leads me beside the interstate each week. It restoreth my suntan. It leads me into state parks for comfort's sake. Even though I stray on the Lord's day, I will fear no reprimand, for I am relaxed. My rod and my reel... They comfort me. I anoint my skin with SPF 30. My gas tank runneth dry. Surely my trailer will follow me all the weekends of the summer, and I shall return to the Lord's house this fall. But by then it will be hunting and football season. I mean, let's be honest. That's halfway true, isn't it? A lot of people worship the God of recreation, and we don't worship the God that created us. Christians who have given up on gathering with the church, they're not here. Look, I'm not saying they've given up completely, but what happens when you miss one Sunday? Just because. Maybe we're a little tired. We had a busy weekend. We did all these things. We miss one Sunday. What happens the next Sunday? Oh, it's easier, isn't it? You miss that third Sunday. <laughs> not even a second thought. Third and fourth Sundays, it's out of our minds. Now, I understand people work and there's things that happen. Don't get, I'm not saying that. But sometimes we just get lazy in what we do. You see, there's great power and persistence to keep gathering, to keep worshiping, to keep encouraging, to keep one another in line, to keep believing in God. And Paul just says, don't stop doing that. Remember, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to your garage makes you a car. Okay? Coming to this church doesn't make you a Christian. It's how the relationship we have with Jesus Christ and what we do with Christ in our life and how we recognize him. Let's be the church. 
Let's do the church what God wants. The second thing is this. Paul says, keep growing in your faith. Keep growing in your faith. Paul says this at the church of the Thessalonians. Your faith is growing more and more. Okay? After his introduction, Paul says three things that he was thankful for them about. They were growing in their faith. They were growing in love. They were growing in perseverance. Not only were they persisting in what was going on in their life with meeting together, Paul points out, you're growing in your faith in all this. So ask yourself seriously this morning, are we growing in our faith? Are we growing in our faith? Spiritual immaturity was a problem in the early church. It's a problem in today's churches. F.F. Bosworth says this, He says, most Christians feed their body three hot meals a day and their spirit one cold snack a week and they wonder why they're so weak in the faith. A little bit of truth there. Okay, there's a lot of truth there. But we have to think about those things. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, he chided them for their immaturity where he says this, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. He says, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it yet. He says, indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. Now, I don't know about you, but when somebody brings a new baby home and it's all the oohs and the ahs and, you know, we kind of laugh and we play with the baby and we hold the baby, we do all those things. But if that baby doesn't grow, what happens? We worry. We take it to the doctor. We have all these tests because we want to find out why this baby isn't growing. It's the same way with our Christian life. If we're not going in our Christian life, we need to find out why. And we see kind of a paradox here, kind of absurdity, oxymoron, if you will, in the Christian life about the analogy of a child. Because Jesus told the disciples that what? That unless you become as little children, they couldn't enter the kingdom of God. So a lot of us are saying, cool, we can be like a child. We can be childlike. And we can still get to heaven. But then Paul writes, you cannot remain as children. We must grow up in our faith. Please understand me. There's a difference in childlike and childish. Okay? It's one thing to have a childlike faith. It's one thing to have a faith as as a mustard seed. But also, to be childish is to refuse to do what God wants us to do. You know, we throw our little spiritual temper tantrums. You know, we kind of stomp our foot. We kind of tell God, no, (laughs) I ain't going doing this stuff. It's not happening. Yes, we have to have simple childlike faith. We have to trust God. But we should mature beyond the childish attitudes of selfishness and self-centeredness. Faith is like a muscle. The more you exercise the muscle, the more it grows. And someone said there are times when you might get to the point where you find it hard to read and think and to even pray. But get this. But you can still trust God. Why? Because he is faithful. All this stuff may be happening. And we may find it hard to even think about it, to pray about it, and to do all those things. But we can still trust God because he is faithful. So are we growing in our faith? Third thing Paul says is simply this. Keep on showing your love. He says the love all of you have for one another, he says, is simply increasing. It's just bigger and bigger. Not only did Paul thank God for their growth in their faith, but he's thinking that their love for each other is growing. And some people call 1 Corinthians 13 the chapter love. The word love appears in 
1 Corinthians 13, 11 times. But in 1 John chapter 4, it's 24 times where John writes, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brothers and their sisters. See, John made a definitive statement about God. He wrote that God is spirit, God is light, and God is love. So understand, the Bible doesn't say love is God. Okay? It doesn't say love is God. It says God is love. And what that means is simply this. Love doesn't define God. God defines love. Okay? There's a big difference. Have you heard anyone say, I just don't believe a loving God could ever send anyone to hell? And what is happening there is they have this sentimental human idea of love, and they try to impose their definition of love upon God. But God loves you. God loves me. God loves us with this unconditional love that we don't understand all the time. Because while we were still sinners, and we are still sinners, God sent his son to demonstrate that love. That love to cover our sins. That love to die on a cross that we're going to start talking about in two weeks. That love that he died for us. So understand this. His love demands a response from us. It demands a response. We love him because he first loved us. John wrote that you cannot say that you love God if you don't love your brothers and sisters. Okay? I understand that's one of the hardest things to do. Especially for those brothers and sisters or those people in the world that just don't act like we do. And he uses strong language. He says, if you claim to love God but don't love others, what he's literally telling us is we're liars. God is going to send people into our life who are hard to love. And the question is, will we, can we, demonstrate our love to them because Christ loved us first? Paul says, keep increasing in that love. The fourth and last one is this. Keep on enduring your trial. This is what Paul says. He says, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. See, three of the most valuable Christian virtues are faith, hope, and love. And you can see all those things in this one passage. You see, faith reaches upward to God in response to his grace. Our faith reaches up to God. So in other words, when we have no place else to turn, and maybe sometimes it's our last place we turn, we reach up and we find God. Hope reaches forward to the future to trust God regardless of the circumstances. That no matter what's going on in my life right here, right now, it's not going to change what I think about what God has for me in the future. It's still going to be there. Also, love reaches outward to others in response to God's grace. Are we going to be able to love other people? Those people God puts in our life, man, they're hard to love. Are we willing to do that? Perseverance is another word for spiritual stamina. Can we keep running this race? And the word stamina, stamina, yeah, whatever, is the ability to keep on going even when you're tired. To keep going even when we're tired. Folks, I want you to understand, in life, we're going to experience painful trials, aren't we? We can't avoid them. And a lot of times, we don't have control over those circumstances. 
man, sometimes life just happens. And sometimes once it starts, it seems like it's a snowball effect and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. The only thing we have control over is how we react to painful circumstances. That's the only thing we can control. We can't control them coming in. We can't control when they leave. We can't control how it's going to happen. But we can control how we react to it. I love what James writes in James 1, verses 2 and 3. He says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. The Bible says you can kind of do this finance type thing where you do your pluses and your negatives and all this. And Paul actually in one part talks about all the different things that we could write down in the negative. All these circumstances in life like death and sickness and sadness, disappointment, rejection, pain, and adversity. We have all those things in our life. Sometimes it's daily, sometimes it's monthly, but it's yearly. But we have all those things. And we don't like to have to face death and sickness and sadness. We don't like those disappointments in life. We don't like it when something is rejected that we want to do or that pain that we have or that adversity that seems to hit us every day. But what do we do about it? We'll get through it. We have and we will. But what does Paul say? Paul says, consider it pure what? Joy. Why not you take your pencil and want to write joy over that list? Because even in all that garbage, even if all that stuff that's going on in our life, even the things that we don't like, Paul says, consider it pure joy. Why? Because it's making us stronger in our faith. It's making us more pure for our faith. The more fire applied to gold, First Peter says, the more valuable we become. I know it's hard. Sometimes we don't have that joy all the time, but we can always write the joy. The Bible says that we should rejoice because our trials make us better. We have great value in enduring trials with a smile. The Bible is full of people who could have been victims, but their faith made them victors and not victims. There's something to be said for a persistent attitude of not giving up, not giving in. Let me close with this last story of an old farmer who had an old donkey. And this old donkey fell down this well, deep well. The donkey started making a racket from the well, obviously doing all the noises that he would make. And when the farmer found him, he had no idea he was going to get him out of this deep well. The farmer got to thinking, and since the donkey was really old, the donkey was crimpled, he kind of thought, well, I'll just get my friends together, and we'll just fill the well, and we'll bury the donkey. We're going to bury him alive. So the guy gets all of his friends together, and they come over, and they start throwing dirt into this well on this donkey. They kind of look down there at one point, and the donkey's covered in dirt and all this. But then after a little while later, they notice the donkey is standing on top of the dirt. They keep throwing the dirt in, keeps rising. Pretty soon the donkey walks right out of the well. Okay, moral to the story. Anybody guess what it is? Don't buy a donkey. <laughs> I could say don't be the donkey and be getting the well, but that's beside the point. Even when the world throws dirt on you, and it could be worse, shake it off and walk out. In other words, don't give up. Galatians 6, 9 says, that us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if what? If we don't give up.
persistence, perseverance. It's all about what God wants in our life. And yeah, the world's going to do other things. The world's going to tell us to shut up, sit down, to ignore what God has to say. But God's word says, don't give up. It's going to work out. You may not get your reward right here, right now. But man, the ultimate reward, what is it? It's out of this world.